0: Thank you for tuning in to the best parenting show on the internet. Post Daily Dose. Speaking about great speakers, I'm going to introduce our first keynote speaker, um, Sir Brian Post. He is one of America's foremost child behavior and adoption experts and founder of the Post Institute. The Post Institute specializes in leading edge education for adults, children, and families who struggle with issues related to early life trauma the impact of trauma on the development of the mind-body system. A renowned clinician, lecturer, and author of several books, video, and audio programs, Brian has traveled throughout the world providing expert treatment and consultation to a variety of groups. An internationally recognized specialist in the treatment of emotional and behavioral (laughs) disturbance, Brian specializes in a love-based treatment approach that focuses on developing a deeper understanding of fear and how it rules our lives. He counters this by offering an enlightening perspective on all on the all-encompassing power of love to bring us peace and healing. The love-based, family-centered principles and concepts offered by Brian Coles have been taught to more than 100,000 parents and professionals around the world. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Post.
1: to walk out of here today when you go back to your children, and I want to be able to help you see them differently. And I want to be able to help you get on a path to healing their brains and healing their hearts that maybe you haven't been on before. And so that's why the title of this talk, not only is it the science of love and parenting, because you probably didn't know there, there was a science to love, but there is, and that's what changes everything. So when we know that there's a science to love, it becomes a game changer. But it's even more than that, it's understanding the new paradigm for parenting traumatized children. And a paradigm is the way in which you see the world. It's the lens that you look through. So everything changes from this new paradigm. You guys can follow me on Facebook, I'm streaming, at the Post Institute on Facebook. Every day, five days a week, I do a show. I call it the greatest little parenting show on the planet. It's called Post Daily Ghosts. Check me out there. So we're going to talk about seeing through a trauma lens. This is the new paradigm to parents who traumatize children. The first thing you have to understand is that all of your children have good-spirit trauma. They're all traumatized. The second thing you have to understand is that probably every single one of us in this room has experienced trauma. We're all traumatized. So if you don't understand that, if you don't get that right from the beginning, then we're already going down the wrong path. So you have to understand what trauma is. And we don't do a very good job in our society, in our professions, of helping people really understand what that means. And so I like to keep it, again, very simple. Trauma is defined as any stressful event, any stressful event which is prolonged, overwhelming, or unpredictable. Now, think about that. Think about that in the context of your life. Because your paradigm doesn't change from me telling you about children. Your paradigm changes by you understanding yourself. When you understand yourself differently, you understand everyone else differently. That which you can see in yourself, you can more readily see in others. That which you cannot see in yourself, you can't see in others. And that really changed for me when I was about 27. And I was already traveling around the world at that time, lecturing and talking about attachment, talking about not a lot about stress, which I'm going to talk about about exclusively now. Talking about attachment, talking about working with defiant children and behaviors and things like that.
0: But when I was 27,
1: I was having an email exchange with one of my patients, and she said, "Well, Brian, what are you afraid of?" And I'm telling you, I was about to bear the S on my chest. I was unbuttoning my shirt. I could see the red starting to show up, and all of a sudden. <laughs> It's like God just tapped me on the head, and God taps me on the head by the head. I'm pretty hard headed.
0: It's like God tapped me
1: on the head, and I had an experience that made me realize that I was afraid of everything. I was about to let her know I afraid of anything. And the exact opposite was the truth. I was afraid of everything. And I had been afraid my entire life. Life. I was adopted, so my fear started in utero. When my mother was, my biological mother, seven months pregnant with me, she knew she wasn't going to be able to keep me. So she had to try to forget that I was even in her belly. That's when it set in. And it did not pick up. It did not lift. And it has not lifted. To be absolutely honest with you, I'm probably one of the most sensitive people you'll ever meet. Fundamentally, because I understand that I'm sensitive. Because of my experiences, the way my brain is wired, the way my brain is shaped from my earliest experiences, makes me highly fearful and stress sensitive. And that's what I want to help you understand, not only about your children, but also about yourself. So I realized in that moment that I was afraid of everything, and as soon as I realized that, my life changed. My professional and my personal life changed. I started seeing fear everywhere. I started seeing fear all the way through my childhood. I started seeing all the anxiety all the way through my childhood. All the behaviors that I that I struggled with as a kid, I started seeing how those all lined up to my stress and my fear. And so it becomes it becomes imperative. It's not important. It is imperative that you understand. The impact of stress and trauma in your life. Trauma is any stressful event which has been prolonged, overwhelming, or unpredictable. And when you don't have an opportunity to talk about it, to cry about it, talk about it some more, cry about it some more, and then understand it. Now think about this. You've experienced a, a, a potentially traumatic experience in your life. Let's say when you were five. Let's say when you were in utero. When you were in utero, because we know that as early as the fourth week after conception. Now I'm talking to you as adults. I'm talking to you as adults. I want you to think about your birth. I want you to think about when you were in your mom's tummy. Not when your foster kid or your doctor kid or your niece or nephew or grandchild was in their mommy's tummy. I want you to think about when you were in your mommy's tummy. As early as the fourth week after conception, the fetus can hear. As early as the second trimester, the fetus can think. So what was going on with mom when she was pregnant with you? What was going on with dad? What were their circumstances? What was their life like? Because you experienced all of the love, and you experienced all the stress. And it began the shaping of your brain. And that shaping, influences you to this day. And there's research that says some adults, in times of stress, have the ability to revert to infancy. How many of you wives in here have said to your husband, would you stop acting like a baby? You don't raise your hand. <laughs> What research tells us is that that is a biological reality. Now think about that. Your grown-ass husband is acting like a baby, and you are like, "What is wrong with you?" You are acting like just like our two-year-old. That is a biological reality because when you stress, you regress. When you stress, you regress. When you're acting out, it's because you are stressed out, which is because you are regressed. Now think about this, because I'm going to take this down the rabbit hole a little bit. Because when you are acting out, it's because you are stressed out, because you are regressed. And when you regress, guess where you go to? You go to this area in your brain called your brainstem. Guess what the brainstem holds? It holds every memory you've ever had. Your brainstem holds every memory you've ever had. Now those memories don't just get stirred up day to day, hanging out this morning, you know, for some of you it does because there are some things that stress us different than other things. So you can experience a dramatic reaction through any of your sensory pathways. What you see, what you hear, what you touch, what you taste, what you smell, the temperature of your body, movement, and digestion. They can all cause you to have a traumatic reaction. So there's somebody in here, this morning, that crowd in the, in the hallway earlier was stressful as hell. <laughs> They're like, oh, Lord, just let me go back to you. <laughs> and they probably don't even know why. They just know not crowd <laughs> stress them out. They don't know why. But they don't know why because it started probably at five started probably at three. It started probably in Europe. You never know. Sometimes you do, but we definitely don't know if we don't ever ask, if we don't ever think about it. And I had a, a lady at one of my conferences once. I was doing it, a conference at a substance abuse national conference in Louisiana. And I talked about if, you're, if that stress experience doesn't have an opportunity to be expressed, processed, and understood, that's the difference between a short-term stressful event and a lifelong long Possibly life-altering, traumatic event. That potential stressful event becomes life-long and possibly life-altering if you don't have an opportunity to express, process, and understand. So it can impact you for the rest of your life. John Colby said, the first three years of our lives establish the blueprints for all of our future relationships. That goes all the way back from conception now. Well, John Bowen didn't realize that then, but science tells us now it starts at conception. And it goes all the way up to five years old. Five years old. By the time you're five years old, your brain is 90% developed. 90%! 90 to 93% by the time you're five. So she heard me talking about that. She came up to me at the break, and she said, oh, my gosh. I have always been terrified of birds, some grown woman. In the helping profession, she's a social worker. I've always been terrified by birds. She said just the other day, I was getting ready for work. I went and got in my car, and a bird flew down on the hood of my car. And she said I froze, I could not move. She said I begged that bird, bird, please be off my. She said, finally the bird flew off my car and I was ever driving bird. She said, I just now remember, when I was five years old, I was in the backyard with my sister, and we had a mean chicken back there, and he attacked <laughs> us. And there was feathers going everywhere. And she said, ever since then, I have been terrified by birds. She had never had the opportunity to express, process, and understand. She didn't remember. It's because that's unconscious. That's in your brain, sin. So you start misbehaving. You start acting like an infant. You don't know why. You just know you feel really stressed out and really angry. You just want a (laughs) nipple. You just want stress, you regress. When you stress, you regress. So if that is a biological reality for adults, I'm still talking about us as adults. Imagine how much more so it is for our kids. Imagine how much more so it is for our foster and adopting and kidship children who many of them, you have a good idea of what they come from. You don't know exactly what they come from because you've not walked in their shoes. You may not, if you've got a partner or a spouse or a best friend, you may not know all the things that your partner your spouse or your best friend have gone through. There are things that we experience in life that shape our realities. And the reason this is important, the reason it is imperative, It's because the children you are raising have all been traumatized, which makes them stress-sensitive and fearful. It's very simple. It's very simple. They are stress-sensitive, and they are fearful. Big groups, a lot of stress. Hunger, stress. Temperature fluctuations, stress. Classroom, stress. Getting in the car, stress. Going to bed, stress. Waking up, stress. Going to the dinner table, stress. Playing with friends, stress. Doing homework, stress. Taking a bath, stress. Brushing teeth, stress. They are sensitive to everything. Some things just trigger them more than others. When they are acting out, it's because they are stressed out, which is because they are regressed. If you regress right along with them, then you've got two two two-year-olds going after that is so important, It is so important, because they rely on our brain state. Our children rely on our brain state, our adult brain state, in order to heal their trauma. They are dependent on us. They cannot heal separate from us. Because we only heal in relationship. So they are dependent on our brain state. If the moment they are acting out, we go into our stress state, we cannot help them heal. We cannot help them heal. So let's talk about these things. Some common traumatic events. These are, just, these are common ones in, in the profession that we work in. right? But there are so many. That's why I want you to remember it's any stressful thing. It could be hot coffee, remember the McDonald's woman, right? That woman potentially could have been traumatized with with hot fluids from the rest of her life. How many kids do you know that don't like to get in the bath? Sometimes that comes because their utero experience was so traumatic.
0: Sometimes it comes because they
1: were scolded. Sometimes it comes just because they are so sensitive to stress it's, it's, it's overwhelming where they don't like to brush their teeth or they don't like tags on the back of their shirts. See we call that autistic. If you don't want to wear socks, you don't want to wear you don't want to wear a shirt with tags, it's not just autistic. You're autistic because you're stress sensitive. And in your stress sensitivity, you shut down until you come out fighting. We all have these patterns. So these are common traumatic events traumatic events, abuse, we're familiar with these, neglect, adoption and foster care, frequent moves, chronic pain, emotional lapses, criminal depression,
2: needs left
1: unmet. All of these things expose the brain to a constant state of stress. And when the brain is exposed to a constant state of stress, it's like it's going to the gym three to four times a day, and it's on steroids. The amygdala becomes really big, and really sensitive. Because the amygdala is the part of your brain that's responsible for helping you create safety in your life. It's part of your brain responsible for survival. But what do all these things have in common? They all occur in the context of human relationships. Why is this important? This is important because if I've gone through these experiences in my life, then I have blueprints in my brain Fear based blueprints in my brain that tell me other people are not safe. I have blueprints in my, working blueprints in my brain that tell me that you are not safe when I become stressed. When I become stressed, you are a threat because of what I've experienced in my early life. My blueprints get turned on. When I get stressed and I regress, my blueprints get turned on. When my blueprints get turned on, I'm hostage to my blueprints. When I get stressed and I regress, my blueprints get turned on, I'm hostage to my blueprints. But now here's where we get, it gets really tricky. Because parental depression and emotional absence are the two most common forms of trauma in our society. If you grew up in the most loving home, the most consistent home, the most predictable predictable home, most nurturing home, in our society, you probably lived in an environment of parental depression or emotional absence. Because you had parents who worked hard to take care of you and to provide for you, and when they got home, they didn't have much left in the tank. And guess what? Tiffany Fields, she's a researcher at the University of Miami. She did studies with these infants. She took this one infant who had a healthy parent, of course there was a big one.
0: One infant was a healthy parent,
1: and another infant was a depressed parent. She hooked them up to these brain monitors. The brain monitors looked exactly the same when the healthy parent got up and walked away from her baby as compared to when the depressed parent walked towards her baby. If you've got a healthy, loving, nurturing parent, they get up and they walk away from you, it's going to cause a stress reaction, because they're your safety figure. Well, imagine if every time your parent walked towards you, it caused a stress reaction. That's the power. That's the power of parental depression and emotional absence. And you know what? Those are the two least sudden, traumatic experiences in our society, because you can't see them. You can't see them. So science says, if it doesn't, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. But it exists all around us because it's a vibration. It's the vibration of stress. When you become stressed, you emit a vibration of emotional absence, not a vibration of emotional connection. So it becomes very important because you may not say a word to your kids I'm talking back to this room you may not say a word to your foster and adopt kinship children and they'll feel stress and they'll feel abandonment they'll feel rejection and it may not have anything to do with them and before you know it they're acting out why? because they got stressed out and when they got stressed out, they regressed, and they regressed into that really scary part of their brain where all that trauma and all that fear and all that pain is stored. Simply because that vibration that God emitted told them that they were not safe. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. Just send that vibration. Now imagine when you yell, or when you hit, or when you threaten, or when you shame. But think about that, especially considering that that kind of behavior towards children, the hitting, the shaming, the yelling, the isolating, sending to the room, the grounding, the threatening, is all based in stress and fear. The most common parenting techniques that we do in society are based in stress and fear. The most common parenting techniques, time out. That's on the same continuum as jail. That's on the same continuum as as, as isolation in prisons. It's just a lesser form. It's based in stress and fear. There's no relationship, and there's the absence of relationship. Now, think about that. Has anyone in the here ever gotten spanked and felt good about it? on, and your blueprint's get turned on, and now we're both <laughs> operating from a place of stress and fear. Stress and fear don't heal the brain. Stress and fear break the brain down. Prolonged states of stress, cortisol, damages the brain. The children that you have in your homes, they have brain damage. So you could very well say to your teenager, are you brain damaged? And mean it. But we don't see it. Some of us have brain damage, and we don't see it. Prolonged states of stress and fear damage a part of your brain called the hippocampus. Your hippocampus is a part of your brain responsible for your short-term memory and your clear thinking. It helps send a signal to your to your prefrontal brain that tells you how to behave and how to act and how to be in social and emotional situations. Well, that overwhelming state of stress. Damages those dendrites in the hippocampus causes it to shrink and triple. And then that prolonged state of stress and fear, it strengthens your amygdala. So your amygdala is all of a sudden getting stronger and bigger and more sensitive. And so the part, of one of the parts of your brain that's supposed to be helping you calm down is getting damaged, and the part of your brain that's making you move into survival and be on alert all the time is getting stronger. And <coughs> so you come into my home as a child with this already existing state of your brain. You're already easily overwhelmed. You already shut down, or you already act out. And then when you act out, I get stressed out, and then I drop into my brain, and then all of a sudden, we're both stressed out. Stress doesn't heal the brain. Prolonged states of repetition and relationship is what heals the brain. Prolonged states of regulation, repetition of regulation, and repetition of relationships is what heals the brain. When children are put in environments to where their stress can be repaired,
0: where they can have a,
1: a sustained, secure relationship, where they can be in an environment that's regulated, and that's a term I use a lot, I'm going to talk about in just a moment, it means a calm environment. That's what heals the brain. Relationship is what heals the brain. Relationship. And the moment you become stressed, you move out of relationship. We have a trillion cells throughout our body and our brain. We actually have as many neurons and as many synaptic connections in our, in our heart as in our gut, in our heart and in our gut as we do in our brain. It's in our whole body. So you have trillions of cells that run through your body mind system. So hold your hand up for just a minute. Pretend this is a cell in your body. I'm going to say stress. Stress, now follow it up, because now it's becoming constricted because your body only knows two states. It knows a surviving state and it knows a thriving state. When you become stressed, you move into fear, you move into survival. I'm gonna say that again. When you become stressed, you move into fear, you move into survival. So now stress, follow it up, good to tight. that, you are stressed out. Now in that state of stress, shake hands with the person next to you. Go ahead, me a shot. If I'm insistent, pretty soon you end up with bloody knuckles. <laughs> this is what's happening in families all the time. All the time, families are trying to be in a relationship, and they're in stress, and they're not in relationship. They're in survival. Unless you can calm down, unless you can regulate, unless you can move from surviving to thriving, you cannot be in a relationship because you can't be open. Thriving in relationship is based in love. Surviving and control is based in fear. We have to be able to get to a place of consistent, prolonged repetition of relationship before we can create healing. If we stay in a state of stress and in a state of fear, we don't, we don't create healing. We only give children an opportunity to grow up. Two important terms, regulation and dysregulation. (laughs) Regulation is the ability to experience and maintain stress within a window of tolerance. It's the ability to maintain stress within a window of tolerance. Every single morning we all wake up with this window of tolerance. And that window of tolerance is what we use to dictate how we relate in the environment, in relationships, and at work, in our behaviors. And we use that window of tolerance all day long to deal with our stress. But the thing is, is the more we go through each day, the smaller our window of tolerance gets because stress is unavoidable. Stress is unavoidable as soon as the alarm clock goes off in the morning, you're stressed. Driving to work, flipping people off. I've seen you before. (laughs) You're stressed. Then you go to work. You got to deal with stuff at work. Then you're worried about bills. Then you got to worry about dinner. Then you got to worry about the kids getting phone calls from the school. You haven't even got home yet. So then you work all day you got to drive home flipping off those same people. You (laughs) flipped off those early work. By the time you get home, your window of tolerance is shrunk. I always say that we spend the greatest majority of our time and energy on the things that matter the least, and the ones who need it the most get the least of it. Because now you're home and you ain't got no patience left. All you want to do is chill out. You don't want to hear no fussing don't want to hear no crying. You certainly don't want to deal with negative behaviors. You just want to have a pleasant, calm dinner. You want everyone to do what they're supposed to do, get in the bathtub, brush your teeth, and go get in the bed. And maybe I'll read you a paragraph or two. <laughs> That's our window of tolerance. When our window of tolerance shrinks, stress becomes more pronounced. That's when we move into dysregulation. Dysregulation is the experience of stress outside of your windows. problems. When you become stressed out, you move into a state called affect dysregulation. little source of all psychiatric disorders. If you understand that, if you understand if you will allow that, and it takes repetition to change the paradigm, it takes two things it takes to change the paradigm, <coughs> the way you see the world. You, repetition and emotional impact. That's how you change your blueprints. Repetition and emotional impact. If you really understand that stress is the fundamental cause of all psychological, emotional, behavioral challenges. Guess what that empowers you to do? The only thing you have to figure out, the only thing you have to figure out, and I figured this out 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I figured this out. That if being stressed out is the fundamental cause of all psychological, emotional, behavioral challenges, the only thing we have to figure out is how to reduce stress. That's it. It's that simple. Because you reduce stress, you reduce fear. When you reduce stress and you reduce fear, you increase love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Love and fear cannot coexist. When you are stressed and you are in fear, there is no space for love. When you can reduce stress, you reduce fear, and you increase love. If you really understand that being stressed out is the fundamental reason for all psychological, emotional, and behavioral challenges, then you know that the only thing you have to do at any given moment when you're seeing problem behaviors, in any given moment when you're not feeling good about your relationship with your child, or your spouse, or your coworker, or anyone else, The only thing you have to do, the only thing you have to do, and I'm telling you this, after 20 years of experience, 20 years of having traveled around the world and worked with the most difficult children and some of the most challenging adults, I am telling you, the only thing you have to do is reduce stress. (coughs) That is it. You just ask yourself, what are three things I can do? What are three things I can do that reduce stress, and what are three things that I do that increase stress? Do less of the things that increase and do more of the things that reduce. Paradigm shift right there. See, we want to make things way too complicated. But do you know why we make them so complicated? We make things complicated because of the brain. (coughs) Your amygdala is what makes things complicated. You should have a key terms to remember. Is that in there? Okay, good. Your amygdala, and I, I really have no idea about time, so someone tell me now? Uh, right, an hour already? Right? I've got an hour. Just an hour? Your amygdala is your fear receptor in your brain. This is that part exercise when you live in a state of stress. So the children that you, that you have in your homes, they've lived in the of stress, they have got very strong overdeveloped amygdala. This is why they're stress sensitive. This is why they're fearful. Because your amygdala is all about fear. It's all
0: about it's the emotional part of your brain. It doesn't think, it just reacts. It's
1: responsible for fight, fight, or freeze. And fight, fight, and freeze are reactions. The difference between a reaction and a response is that a reaction does not require thought. It is just all emotional and just go. That's all it does. It is your caveman brain, your reptilian brain. Fight, fight, or freeze, and we always freeze first, and then we fight or we flee. An oppositional defiant child is a scared child. When a child is defiant, it's because their brain has gone into a state of freeze. When a child is acting like they they, they don't hear what you're saying, it's because they're in a state of freeze. When they have, like they're when you think they're ignoring you, it's not because they're ignoring you, it's because they're in a the state of phrase. You see, that goes right up against all of your blueprints. Because you have, you have generations of blueprints that tell you different. You have generations of blueprints that tell you that children are willfully disobedient, that they are defiant, and that they are manipulative, and that they are controlling. And that when they misbehave, they need their little butt with. That's what every one of your blueprints says. Now, you've overwritten that over the years We don't flip as much, but you know that 90% of adults still believe it's okay to hit a two-year-old? 90% of adults in America still believe it's okay to hit a two-year-old. You know what that tells me? That that conditioning, those blueprints for stress and fear, is still very much pronounced. But there's a lot of things that tell me that. So your amygdala just reacts. So when your child hits that sensory experience, and it doesn't matter, it's all unconscious, who knows what's going to cause it, but they have that sensory experience that triggers their amygdala, their amygdala stirs up the brainstem. Depending on the level of stress, the amygdala stirs up the brainstem. The brainstem is where those blueprints are at. The brainstem is where all those painful memories are at. The, The brainstem, that's the regression. When the amygdala gets activated, it regresses into the brainstem. That's where all those blueprints are at. Now, when your child misbehaves, this is where it gets real tricky and real nasty. Because when your child misbehaves, you get regressed. Because as soon as you see a behavior that you don't like, it is a threat. When we see behaviors we don't like, they become threats. And our amygdala becomes activated and starts pouring out cortisol.
0: The cortisol
1: overwhelms the hypothalamus, it overwhelms the hippocampus. It disrupts the prefrontal cortex, the orbital cortex. Your orbital cortex is your executive control center for all of your social and emotional function. So when you get really stressed out, and that cortisol starts pouring through your brain, everything else gets disrupted. Joseph LeDoux, New York University neuroscientist, wrote a book called The Emotional Brain. He says this is another one of those little statements that I think is so important. I would tell you to write it down, but I know you're not going to. And I'm going to repeat it three four or five times just for that one person who thinks I've to write this down. <laughs> In times of stress, our thinking becomes confused and distorted and suppresses our short-term memory. In times of stress, our thinking becomes confused and distorted and suppresses our short-term memory. This is why when your child is misbehaving, everything gets real complicated (coughs) because you're not thinking clearly. Your cortisol in your brain is causing your thinking to become confused and distorted. You don't see a five-year-old, you see a future serial killer. (laughs) You don't remember that just 10 minutes ago you guys were Loving and nurturing and hugging one another and cuddling and stumbling? And neither do they. In times of stress, our thinking becomes confused and distorted and our short-term memory is suppressed. That's why we make things so complicated. Because when our mental is activated, it's just looking for a threat. It's just looking for a threat. It's just looking for a threat. Everything that shows up is a threat. So when we are stressed out, that's what we do. We look for threats. A smile is a threat, a huff is a threat, an eye roll is a threat. If I, don't, if I don't reply to you right away, that's a threat. If I slam the door, that's a threat. If I yell at you, that's a threat. Everything becomes a threat when you're stressed out because your mental is activated and that's all it's doing is looking for a threat. I'm talking about our adult brains. And if our adult brains get activated and start looking for threats and then drop into our brainstem, we regress into our brainstem to when daddy used to whip our butt or when we were in a car wreck or when we were in a domestic violence situation or when we were raped or when we were abused or when we were deprived. I'm talking about you and I. Or when we were rejected or when we were abandoned. That's what shows up. That becomes our reality in that moment. And in that moment, our children are looking at us to provide regulation for them. In that moment, our children are looking for us to regulate their brains. Because an acting out child is a stressed out child. An acting out child is a stressed out child. An acting out child is a stressed out child. child. And a stressed out child has exceeded their window of tolerance. And nine times out of ten has dropped into their brainstem and is reacting from their trauma. It has nothing to do with you. Nothing at all. But you're going to see their behavior as a threat. And when you see their behavior as a threat, your little amygdala gets activated. And then all of a sudden, all your junk is stirred up. And then what's not happening is one thing that's got to happen, that has to happen, that is essential that happens. Is we're not turning on oxytocin. Oxytocin is the science of love and parenting. Oxytocin is a little hormone in your brain secreted by the hypothalamus. It is known as the love hormone, it is known as your anti stress hormone. So when you're in cortisol, or when your amygdala releases cortisol, your hypothalamus is supposed to turn on and release oxytocin. That's how we calm ourselves down. We don't calm ourselves down by being to totally calm down. We calm ourselves down by turning on oxytocin, our anti-stress hormone. But here's the thing: oxytocin is a learned a learned response in your brain. It is a learned response in your brain, meaning it must be taught to you. Now, here's the truth of the matter. Most of us were raised in loving homes. We know our parents like us. They may have been hard parents, they may have spanked they may have failed, they may have whipped and all that kind of stuff. But most of us, fundamentally, were raised in consistent Predictable homes. If you were raised in some of these small rural communities around Michigan, you were raised in a consistent, predictable way, a secure way. You knew that when you went to school that you were going to come home, you were going to have a home, you were probably going to have some food, you had decent shoes, yeah, maybe they for Walmart, Kmart, wherever, because your parents worked, but you, you were okay. And so, for all the emotional absence and the parental depression that may have existed, we're fundamentally okay. So, our brains operate pretty well. So, when we get stressed out now, we do okay with calling ourselves down. It takes some of us longer than others. But I'm 46 on June 4th. I'm 46 years old. I don't know how old you are. It's taken me a long time to get to that place. A long time. And sometimes my stress and my fear still get the better of me. They still get the better of me, and I don't calm myself down as fast as I'd like to. And I've been teaching this stuff for 20 years. (coughs) Imagine you've got a child who's 2 years old, or 5 years old, or 10 years old, or 15 years old. And they've been in 10 different foster placements. That's just why they've been in foster They've been in 10 different foster placements. Some of those are abusive. They might be on three different medications. They've been in all kinds of different therapy already. They may have even been in a group home. That's just while they've been in the system. We're not, even, we're not even yet at the place of looking at what they came from. Where
0: the, where the hard wiring really
1: took place. The abuse, the neglect, the deprivation, the new stuff, the married stuff. But how much oxytocin response do you think they've learned? Let's just be honest. How much oxytocin do you think a child who's been in 10 different placements, a residential visit, 3 different psychiatric medications, 3 or 4 diagnoses, just while they've been in the system, not to mention the first three years they spent with their drug-addicted parents, their father who wasn't even there, and the two or three other siblings they had to take care of, and the days, the days that they went without food, or the, or the number of times the boyfriend came into the kid's bedroom and had sex with them. Well, like we're not even talking about that yet. How much oxytocin do you think this child's brain is supposed to have? They have a degree, they have a number how much are they supposed to have? So when they get stressed out, just just how much are they supposed to be able to handle? When they get stressed out and overwhelmed and they drop into their breaks, just how much do we think they're supposed to handle? Because we have this high expectation for how adopted foster children and kinship placed children should behave. oxytocin in the midst of stress. All of that behavior is based on their ability to turn on oxytocin in the presence of stress. And if they come from an environment of neglect and abuse and overwhelm and absence and frequent moves, how much oxytocin do they really have? So going to just do you a favor? Just consider that they have none just consider that they have none you know what that means that means we have to take responsibility because now it's my responsibility to teach your brain how to release oxytocin when you are stressed and you know what the first step of that is the very first step of me teaching your brain how to release oxytocin when you're stressed is calming my own brain if i cannot tar- if i cannot dial down my amygdala, my stress, and my fear, I cannot teach you oxytocin. And if I cannot teach you oxytocin, I can't help you heal. Because ultimately, I'm not really in a relationship with you. We're just living together. You're just living in my home. <laughs> How much time do you have? forty-five minutes? Yeah. Slow <clears throat> <So throat> down. <laughs> But it's really important for all of us in every, every different scenario. Because this is the science. And again, I'm very basic. You can, you can go to a neuroscientist and get all complicated and get into the dendrites and the synapses and all that kind of stuff. But I'm just giving you the basics, and that's all you need. Chris Perry says that if you work with children, you need to have a generalist understanding of the brain. A generalist understanding of the brain. So since like I back up for 45 minutes, look back up for just a minute. So your amygdala releases cortisol which passes to the pituitary, your, your hypothalamus sits alongside the pituitary, pituitary
0: and that's the part of the brain
1: that's supposed to release oxytocin. Now, also within the structure of the hypothalamus is a little nerve structure, a little nerve bundle called your suprachiasmatic nucleus. This is going to be exciting for some of you. Your suprachiasmatic nucleus is the part of your brain that controls your circadian rhythms. Your circadian rhythms decide whether you are hungry or not. Your circadian rhythms tell you whether or not you're tired and whether or not you're ready to go to sleep. Your circadian rhythms tell you to wake up. But if you've got an overwhelming amount of cortisol flushing through your brain, that's what's being knocked off balance. Your suprachysnatic super nucleus. Your circadian rhythms are disrupted. So you want to know why your kid doesn't want to eat. You want to know why your kid won't go to bed. You want to know why your kid doesn't want to wake up.
0: You want to know why your kid's
1: not potty-trained. It's their circadian rhythms. They've experienced so much stress, the control system in their brain for helping them calm down they recognize that they're hungry. See, some children don't even recognize that they're hungry. Those are called failure to drive children. They live in such an environment of neglect and deprivation that that dial in their brain has been turned all the way down. They don't even know it. They, just, they don't even want to eat. They don't want to eat because they don't know that they're hungry. So they just go, 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 go. And some children, that dial just turned all the way up. They just want to eat all the time the only thing that makes you feel good. Why does why does eating make you feel good? Because eating releases oxytocin. Oh my gosh! On Facebook yesterday, my mom posted this video. To this baby. It says
0: when I when I see food, and it says, yeah, it. <laughs> oh, this
2: is getting on my
1: Eating releases oxytocin. Releases oxytocin. Hugs release oxytocin. Touch releases oxytocin. These two love birds right here. Just in love. Hold hands. Just look at each other, just in love. It's oxytocin. Oxytocin is preventative to stress. It shields the brain from stress. But when mom is pregnant and mom is experiencing a great deal of stress, she is releasing a great deal of cortisol and that cortisol is flushing through the womb, flushing through the womb at that early stage. And your amygdala, your fear receptor, it completes its development when it's 18 months old. So some children who get 18 months, they have an amygdala operating in their brain like they've been living here for for three years. It's twice the size, it's twice as sensitive, because of how much stress they've been experiencing. And that hypothalamus, and that hippocampus, it's deficient, it's diminished, it's delayed, it's damaged. Because your hippocampus doesn't complete its development until the 36th month. And so you're three years old, until you're three years old, you don't even begin to have the capacity to think clearly and have effective short-term memory. Three years old is That's in a, in a normal, healthy environment. And what if you come from some of these environments that these children do? Do they have that? No, it's not even turned on yet. We think they should act right. We wonder why children bite other children. They bite because they are scared. They bite because they were stressed. And what's the first thing that we usually do as adults when children are biting other children? Some of us have bitten back. and we bite them back. How is that supposed to change anything? What that does is it makes the kid afraid of us. Which then just reinforces that human relationship trauma. So then we make the ability to help that child find soothing that much more diminished. We do some crazy things. We do a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. Because when you're stressed, you're thinking story. It's really simple. When you're stressed, your thinking is confused and distorted. Your short-term memory shut off. Your short-term memory will tell you, don't like it, baby. Short, that's what your short-term memory is good for. We don't like it. So don't When your short-term memory, gets shut off. We do like We don't like it. of these kids some of these kids who came from nothing some of these kids who haven't even begun to develop the ability to release oxytocin and this stress i believe fundamentally that everything we do with kids should be oriented towards oxytocin see stress is unavoidable and stress is important because without stress our brains wouldn't even develop without stress we couldn't regulate temperatures without stress we couldn't digest food without stress we couldn't lie. Without stress, we couldn't get along. But it's the repair of stress that becomes so important. It's the repair of stress. It's not. It's not that children are supposed to live in environments where they don't ever get stressed out. That's not reasonable. That's not realistic. It's the repair of stress. It's when we stop repairing the stress that we have the problem. When we start creating more of it. When we start creating more stress for these kids who've already lived their lives getting stressed out. You're going to get nothing more than what you're already getting. Bishop Jakes says if you always do what you've always done, you will always be where you've already been. If your, your reaction, I'm going to call it a reaction because it's not a response because it's a reaction because you're not thinking clearly. You're not thinking clearly. If your reaction to a child who is acting out is to do something towards that child more stressful, you're only going to get more of what you're trying to reduce. Because it's your reaction. Because you're not thinking clearly. It's automatic. It's unconscious. It's coming from your own stuff. So the educational success model, it always starts from the bottom. It start from the brain. That's the way I look at it. Start from the brain and go up. When we are stressed. We are in our amygdala and our brainstem. When we become stressed, and I'm going to say it again, an acting out child is a stressed out child. So you think about a classroom right now. You've got a kid in a classroom who's already acting out. They're already acting out. Listen, there's no way that child is going to learn. Because they're acting out, it means they're stressed out, which means they're in their amygdala and their brainstem. They're in a survival and in a reacting state of their brain. All they can do is survive. Learning doesn't, doesn't exist at that level of brain functioning. That's where they're at. They're in a, they're in a state of survival. They're not in a state of thriving. See, we only thrive when we can move up to that higher level part of our brain. See, that's where normal kids come from. Normal kids, kids who, who don't experience a great deal of stress and trauma in their early lives. They have that consistency and the predictability. So they go to school and they learn just fine because they don't ever even drop into survival and reactive. They always operate right between processing and driving and, and integration. They're always releasing oxytocin. So they learn efficiently. Well, see, these are the kids who always get to go on the field trips. These are the kids who always get their, the, all their points and all their stars and they always get the rewards. Because their brains can tolerate stress. Our kids can't. So when our kids are acting out and they're in school, there's no learning that's going to happen.
0: So the most
1: important thing for an educator to do at that point in time, sit away with them at home. When your child is acting out, they're not going to learn anything. Stop talking to them. Stop lecturing them. Stop yelling. Stop trying to teach them anything. They're not going to learn. It's shut off. <clears throat> the most effective thing you can do is start breathing and calming yourself down. And start thinking about what do I need to do to help this child start to calm down. Because when I can start this child on the pathway to calm me down, they move up to the hypothalamus. See, what I'm doing is I'm turning on their oxytocin response. When my child is stressed out and I am calming myself down and I'm not becoming more overwhelming or more threatening or more shaming or more highting, I am turning on their oxytocin response because I'm turning on my oxytocin response.
0: So I'm engaging their
1: hypothalamus instead of their amygdala. When my child is acting out and stressed out and I'm engaging their hypothalamus instead of their amygdala, I'm going to get less negative behavior so I have to calm myself down first so I can turn all my response so that means initially I might not say anything to you let me tell you why that's so hard I want to show you why that's so hard because when you are when the child is misbehaving our amygdala gets activated and sends us into fight like a freaks. So it's hard for us not to say something about the behavior. It's hard for us to not <clears throat> want to do something. Jesus help me. <laughs> to want to do something about the behavior. Because our mental is telling us that we need to be in survival. Our mental is saying, threat, 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 threat. And that's all your mental does. It says threat, threat, threat. And it wants you to control the behavior. It wants you to suppress the behavior. It wants you to make the behavior go away. And that's conditioned for generations. You've got generations of condition. Generations of condition that tell you to obsess on that behavior and make that behavior go away. Control that behavior. Suppress that behavior. Generations of condition that tell you. When that child rolls their eyes at you, oh help me Lord, I'm gonna knock those eyeballs in the back of your head.
2: <laughs>
1: generations! Generations going be death. The thing is, some of the generations where some of that stuff came from, it really was important not to roll your eyes. If we go back, if I go back three generations, three, three generations, my great grandfather still has whip marks on his back for being a slave. As a slave, you better not roll your eyes, so you can understand how it's based in survival. That's in our DNA. That, that fear that comes over us see we don't even realize it's fear. When our children do stuff like roll their eyes when they huff and they puff and they stomp or they slam the door. We don't realize that it's stressing us out and causing us fear. We don't realize all those unconscious imprints that are driving that behavior. See, it comes from a really deep place. But that doesn't exist anymore. We don't deal with the same levels of threat we did then three generations ago. We don't have to be the same people we had to be then. In order not to do that, we have to change our DNA. And the only way you change your DNA is through repetition of relationships and regulated environments. And over time, see, this is big work you're actually doing. Because this work actually starts to change your lineage. This is not just raising a foster kid or raising an adopted kid or, or a kinship placement. This is, this is changing the lineage of your DNA. Your behavior towards your kids now is what, what they're gonna do with their grand with your grandkids and then your great-grandkids. So this is a really big deal. So that's why it's so hard for us when children are acting out to turn on oxytocin, because we see a threat. That threat isn't even there nine times out of ten, I'm going to say 97% of the time, when your child is misbehaving, it is not that big a deal. It just isn't. But you have all this hardwiring in your brain that tells you how serious it is. And then you don't realize that your amygdala reaction is only creating more stress and more fear. So you're not turning on that hypothalamus. You're not turning on that hypothalamus. You're not even getting the child up to a place where they can start to respond. Because until you get them up to the place that they can start to respond, they can't get up to the place where they can start processing and start thinking. See, i got to get them up to responding, and then i got to get them up to processing before they can even start to learn. So if my child is misbehaving, I'm not going to yell at them. I'm not going to get stressed and try to teach them something right in that moment because their brain's not there. i got to breathe. i got to calm myself down. i got to figure out how I can reduce stress, how I can stay present, how I can not get overwhelmed, how I can connect, maybe how I can just leave them alone for a little bit. I might just need to go in the kitchen and start washing dishes. And not say a word. So I can calm down and turn my oxytocin, and I can go back and maybe they've done some of it themselves. Maybe they've dialed up with oxytocin on their own. Now they're up in that place where they're processing a little bit, and I'm talking about later that night. I'm talking about the next day. Hey, honey, you know the other day, when we had that thing happen, man, that made me sad. How'd that make you feel? That really scared me. Well, yeah. I didn't want you to do that. I know you didn't. To. I just want you to know we're safe. We're good. Okay. Then they remember. See, now they're learning. Now they can learn because their brain's battled up. It's turned on. But in the moment of stress, they can't hear that. And it doesn't have to be that more that, any more complicated than that, guys. You've just been conditioned to believe that you've got to beat the tar out of a kid in order for them to learn anything. And we don't learn that way. Right. Not, Hopefully, you're not beating the tar out of them kids. <laughs> Figuratively. You need people with the words, with their games, or whatever. And then you move up to the practice crowd. All right, so let's talk about three pathways of emotional expression. We're going to wind it up. We're going to wind it up here, This is very important. First I want you to think about yourself as a child. When you were a child, you have to understand that we all have three pathways through which we express our emotions. What is an emotion? It is energy in motion. And our body only knows two states of energy, a thriving energy and a surviving energy. That's the only two states of energy your body knows. So your body only knows two emotions, love and fear. There are only two emotions, love and fear. A feeling is a cognitive perception of an emotion. A feeling is a cognitive, your thinking brain, your left hemisphere, interpreting your emotional brain, your emotions, and labeling it as a feeling. That's a feeling. You only know love and fear. Those are the only two energy states that exist, surviving and thriving. You're either surviving or you're thriving in any given situation. Anger is fear. We have three pathways through which we express our emotions, attitudes, feelings, and behaviors. And when you were in, you roll your eyes. How many of you could roll your eyes at your parents and feel safe about it? <laughs> Not my thing. Right? But that was an attitudinal expression. If you couldn't express through your attitudes, you get suppressed through your feelings. So if you hear don't cry. If you hear, don't roll your eyes at I me. Mean, if you hear, don't huff and puff. If you hear, just do what I tell you to do. Then your attitudes are not okay, so you go to your feelings. How many of you as kids can yell at your parents? And cuss at your parents? You could not if you wanted to maintain your life your <laughs> dignity <laughs> in your home. Feelings become not okay. If you hear enough, don't cry, don't you yell, don't you talk to me that way. Children are to be, are to be uh, seen and not heard. If you hear that enough, your feelings get suppressed. So now you can't express your attitude, you can't express your feelings. If you can't express your attitudes, you can't express your feelings, you're like, what behaviors? How many of you can freely misbehave as children? Not if you wanted to live. That was always a looming threat, Right? You into this world, I will take you back. We, we behave because we do not want to get beaten. And always that threat, always that threat. If you can't express your attitudes, and you can't express your feelings, and you can't express your behaviors, guess what you're left with? Anger and depression. Anger and depression become your only two pathways, and anger and depression have to come through. If you can't express your attitudes, you can't express your feelings, you are stuck with anger, depression, and behaviors. Anger, depression, and behaviors. I call this the trauma triangle. And if you spend six months or longer, six months or longer in the trauma triangle, that is living in an environment of trauma. In the trauma triangle is where you get diagnosis, it's where you get medication, it's where you get disruptive placements, it's where you get residential treatment. It's where you get restraint. It's where you get a lot of isolation, severe behavior modification. All that occurs down at the level of the trauma triangle. Now, now we're going to back up to that thing about thinking. Stress causes to confuse distorted thinking, suppress our short-term memory. If I cannot express through my attitudes and I cannot express through my feelings, then the only thing I can express is my behavior. It's stuck within us. You kids rolling their eyes is nothing more than a signal.
2: It's nothing
1: more than a signal that they're trying to transition, that they're that they're having some kind of feelings. And expressing their feelings is nothing more than a signal. That's it. Tell me how you feel. I want to know how you feel. I want to know. Yell it if you want to. Cuss if you want to. raising right now that doesn't have every going reason in the world to cuss all day every day. Tell me one kid, one kid that you're raising that hasn't been through some bullshit, that doesn't have every right to cuss. And we want to get them in our homes and tell them they can't cuss. I'm going to cuss for you. See, that's the difference. That's the difference. If it's me and you, I'm gonna cuss for you because I'm mad that you're gonna do what you're gonna do. I'm mad and I'm sad and I'm hurt. And every time that shows up in your behavior, I'm mad and sad and hurt because you've gone through some shit that makes you feel unsafe. And you can't feel safe with me because of all that. So by God, we're gonna fight through it. We're gonna fight through it. We're going to get on the other side of it. But I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight for your heart. I'm going to fight for your emotions. I'm going to fight to help you get through all that pain that tells you that I'm a threat. I'm going to to fight to get to that place so you can trust that some adult in your life has your freaking back. Amen. So, write down, you can put me sniffing well. Write this down. www.feartolovebook.com. Feartolovebook.com. You go to that website, you get your book, we'll mail it to you, and you get the audiobook and you the book. So, plan on doing that. says one of the best lessons you can learn in life is how a master is to master how to remain calm. He's absolutely right. So after all of that, after all of that, if there's one thing that I can teach you and one thing only, it would be how to breathe in the midst of stress. So I carry this a little bowl just to give us a little practice. Inhaling and, exhale. Inhaling and exhaling. Inhaling and exhaling. Because when you become stressed out, the first thing you do is you stop breathing. If you want to master how to remain calm, which means you master how to keep your thoughts clear, how to keep your short term memory activated, you've got to master how to breathe when you're feeling stressed. So let's breathe. Practice your breathing when you're calm. Because if you practice your breathing, if you wait to breathe when you stretch, you're already stressed. You're not going to breathe. Bruce Perry says that we are biologically engineered to be in a relationship. Every dendrite, every synapse, every cell is engineered to be in a relationship. And I believe that if this is true, then the relationship becomes the single most important thing. Not the behaviors, the relationship. A focus on behavior will bring you further away from your child. Don't focus on the behavior. Focus on the relationship. Because the relationship will soothe the behavior and it will help your child to heal. Without relationship, your child cannot heal. But the only way you can be in a relationship is if you can calm yourself down and turn on oxytocin. Reduce stress that the relationship's back. God bless you. Thank you for your time and you. attention to keep up You say, you say to each of them, we got you know we got five minutes of daddy time. You know daddy doesn't feel good, so y'all come today. And let them come to you and you just love them and talk to them and then send them on their way. Like, just go, okay, time to go, five minutes up, time to go. that five minutes will make a big difference. Okay? Um,
0: About their adoption experiences, do you feel that the primal connection to the birth parents is um, the main reason for adoption struggling so
1: hard, or is it more so the um, adoptive parents' reaction to the pre birth family as such? Do I feel that the adopted child's
0: when an adoptive child, um, I've spoken to a lot of adoptive adults, and um, a lot of them speak of their adoptions as really negative experiences. Do you feel that that is more because adoptive parents aren't um, building the relationships in the way that they should, or do you feel that it's more just the primal loss of the biological family? It's a, it's a combination.
1: So so adoptive children at foundation have the loss of the biological which, which is usually um, stored internally as "I'm not good enough," and uh, I'm going to be abandoned <coughs> to that, that level of sensitivity, and then they move into the doctor placements—not all children—but they move into the doctor placements where the parents don't really understand them. And that was really my experience. It wasn't so much my experience; that it was my sister's experience. I love, them. I love my my—they're my parents. You know, my dad's passed away now. And uh, I always grew up feeling very secure. So I don't have that framework that um, a lot of adult adoptees have that adoption was a bad experience for them. Adoption was the best thing that ever happened in my life. My sister would not disagree. And it's fundamentally because not only does she have, and did she have did she have she was killed in a car right too. Um, not only did she have that loss from her biological family, but she and my, my mom and dad, they never connected. It was always, it was always tumultuous. It was always stressful. And my mom said, shortly after my sister passed away, that the one thing that my sister needed that she never got was understanding. They just never understood.
0: Um, one thing that I've noticed in a few of the more serious cases I have is that there is such complex trauma that it causes seen how your your program or whatever helps with children who've been through so much severe trauma, I'm talking towards the end of physical abuse, where they're disconnected from themselves. Have you seen that have an effect um, for those who don't have the memory, or don't have any, they just have the, as you call it, the blueprints, so or the behaviors, and not the memories attached because of the, the abuse? So,
1: for children who, who have been through such extreme trauma that they become dissociative that they don't have an opportunity to heal and show up in the presence of that pain is because there's so much stress that continues to show up around them. So the stress that shows up around them may not be the same kind of stress that caused them to dissociate, but it's enough stress to keep them in a place that they're trying to survive all the time, so they never really get to, to, to work through that pain. And so, in my experience, when I can help parents Understand themselves, so they don't get so overwhelmed by the child to shut down and go away, or behavior. When they can start to understand their child in a way that, when the child is in that dissociative place, they can stay present. And when they can stay present over time, and through, through lots of repetition, the child can start working through. See, here's the thing about severe behavior that a lot of times we don't understand. When your child is misbehaving actually giving you an inroad to their trauma. It is in the midst of severe behavior that you have the best opportunity to help the child heal. You
0: see because we
1: try so hard to suppress the behavior, we keep shutting off the brainstem. stem. But when the child is misbehaving, their brainstem stem, when the child gets so stressed that it starts driving their negative behavior, their brain stem opens up. That's where the healing has to take place. So the healing has to take place in the moment of the behavior. And that, and the way it happens, is through your presence, through your responses, through your attention, through your your own feelings when they're in that when it's wide open. You don't have to go down and do anything magical. The magic is being able to be present and not get overwhelmed and provide a little bit of oxytocin in the midst of all that fear and pain. And so when you can do that slowly, but surely children start to heal, the brain starts to integrate, And they start to become more present, they don't have to go away anymore. So I've done that with kids as well as adults. Yes. Okay, you guys, enjoy lunch.